You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast, my collection of fascinating true stories from the flip side of history. My name is Steve Silverman, and today's story is called The Sky is Falling. But before we do that, let's start with today's question of the day, which involves windshield wipers. Specifically, what was the name of the first commercially available windshield wiper? Was it 1. Everclear, 2. Outlook, 3. Rain Rubber, 4. Sea Safe, or 5. Turtleback? And by the way, those are all real names of windshield wipers. Again, what was the name of the first commercially available windshield wiper? Was it 1. Everclear, 2. Outlook, 3. Rain Rubber, 4. Sea Safe, or 5. Turtleback. And as always, I'll let you ponder over these five choices and I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast. And now for today's story that I've titled The Sky is Falling. And this begins with a businessman named Alvin Rodiger. He was the head of Aaron DeRoy Management, which was a company founded by Arthur D. Rodiger in 1927. Now, why a family with the name of Rodiker would own a company called Aaron DeRoy is beyond me. I'm guessing the company was purchased, and of course, they incorporated beyond that. Um, but really, that is not important to this story at all. It's just a little bit of background. What really is important is the fact that the younger Alvin Rodiker was turning 60 years old. And to celebrate this milestone, Alvin and his wife Catherine spent many weeks planning a trip to New York City. They arrived in the Big Apple on Wednesday, June 22nd of 1960, and they checked into the Landmark Plaza Hotel for three days. The very next day, June 23rd, which just happened to be his birthday, the couple decided to have lunch at, and I know I'm going to mess the French up here, so I apologize, Le Pavillon Restaurant at 111 East 57th Street, which is right off of Park Avenue. That was about a seven-minute walk from the hotel, and the couple could have chosen to eat anywhere in the city. I'm sure there were many fine restaurants closer to the hotel, but for some reason they chose this particular restaurant. At around 2 p.m. in the afternoon, Mr. and Mrs. Rodiker finished their meal and, of course, exited the restaurant. Holy cow, that was expensive, Mr. Rodiker commented to his wife. He added, but it was worth it. We're really celebrating. And then, bam! Those were the last words Alvin Rodiker ever spoke. Something fell from the sky, and he was knocked out cold on the sidewalk, and of course bleeding very badly. So you're probably wondering, what hit him in the head? Was it a meteor, a chunk of concrete that fell from the building? Nope, it was none of those. It was an eight-pound dumbbell. You know, the type that guys use to uh, build up their muscles to impress the ladies. Anyway, Mr. Rodica was rushed to the hospital, but sadly, he didn't make it. 
Now, you can be sure that the doctors did everything that they could to save his life, but he succumbed to his injuries the very next day. So you're probably wondering, where in the world did the killer dumbbell come from? Well, it turns out that Le Pavillon restaurant was located on the ground floor of one of Manhattan's ritziest apartment buildings, the aptly named Ritz Tower. That was the 41-story home to many people of fortune and fame back then. And eight stories directly above the exterior canopy of the restaurant was the apartment of actress Arlene Francis and her husband, theatrical producer Martin Gable. Now, both are virtually forgotten today, but I assure you that they were very, very well known back then. Now, the couple was not in the apartment at the time of the incident. For the previous three weeks, they'd been staying in their Mount Kisco, New York home, which was a bit closer to the Westport, Connecticut summer stock play that Ms. Francis was performing in. Since they knew that their Ritz Tower apartment was going to be unused during this period, the couple decided to get their broken air conditioner fixed. It was one of those large window units that left a gaping hole in the window frame when it was removed. So to resolve this problem, a temporary screen was installed, but it didn't sit too well in the opening. As a result, and you probably guessed it here, two eight-pound dumbbells were wrapped in towels and propped against the screen to keep it firmly in place. Keep in mind that the dumbbells of this period were all round. They weren't the flat-sided polygons that are so commonly used today. That means, of course, they can roll very easily. Clearly, some sort of action set one of these dumbbells in motion. Investigators quickly learned that Ms. Francis' secretary, a woman named Muriel Fleet, decided that this particular screen needed cleaning, and then the maid Effie Turner started to remove it from the window. As she did so, one of the dumbbells became unwrapped from its towel and rolled across the window ledge. Effie made a quick grab for it, but she was unable to stop its forward momentum. The dumbbell was now in a state of freefall, right down to the sidewalk below where it struck Mr. Rodiker with that fatal blow to his skull. Just a few days later, Ms. Francis was scheduled to appear on the TV show, What's My Line? That's a show on which she was a regular panelist from 1950 to 1975. So here's an audio clip from that episode. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to What's My Line? I would pause for just a moment to say that um, we have prevailed upon Miss Arlene to be here with us tonight under very trying circumstances, and we're very proud of her that she does come to be with us on our usual Sunday night, because, as I think you all must realize, this is a very difficult and trying time for her, and we think it's wonderful that she came to join us. Thank, Thank you, Miss Arlene. That was the show's host, John Charles Daly, speaking right after the four panelists, including Ms. Francis, were introduced to the audience. In Ms. Francis's 1978 autobiography, she writes, quote, I was called in Westport and I came to New York immediately, shattered and unbelieving and covered with guilt. The latter was not because anyone was trying to attach blame to me, but it was my room, and they were my dumbbells, and I couldn't help feeling, however inadvertently, that I had been responsible for someone's death. And that's the end of the quote. 
Two weeks after the accident, the district's attorney's office announced that after a thorough investigation, it was concluded that there was absolutely no evidence of criminal neglect. This was simply an accident stemming from a bizarre sequence of events. While there was clearly no criminal guilt here, lawsuits certainly did follow. A suit was filed by Mrs. Rodiker in New York State Supreme Court on January 11th of 1962 against Arlene Francis, her husband Martin Gable, and the Ritz Towers Hotel for $500,000. On June 20th of that same year, it was announced that an out-of-court settlement had been reached. The couple agreed to pay Catherine Rodiker $175,000, and that was covered by their insurance policy. The apartment building coughed up an additional $10,000 for a grand total of $185,000. I'm sure you can do that math. Mrs. Rodiker's lawyers then took their cut of $41,000 out of that. Now, at first glance, $185,000 may not seem like a lot of money for the death of a spouse, but that translates into about $1.4 million in 2012 funds. With that sad tragedy behind them, things were only about to get worse for Ms. Francis. Less than one year after the settlement was reached, that's May 26 of 1963 at 2.20 in the afternoon to be precise, she was driving along the Northern State Parkway of Long Island at about 30 miles per hour. Now that's about 55 kilometers per hour for those unfamiliar with our kind of unusual imperial system of measurement. So here she is driving with a fine drizzle coming down, the car windows are fogging in, and then suddenly the car in front of her skidded. She immediately slammed on her brakes and she veered right across the highway divider into head-on traffic. Her car collided with another car driven by Joseph Arcos of Brooklyn. The impact knocked Miss Francis unconscious, but she awoke just as she's being loaded into the ambulance. She suffered a broken collarbone, cracked ribs, a concussion, and of course the many cuts and bruises that are common to an accident this severe. She was very lucky to be alive. Sadly, Rose Arcos, the wife of the driver, was killed. And once again, the lawsuits were filed, but this time it was for $1.8 million. That's about 13 million buckaroos today. This is an amount far above what any insurance policy would cover at that time, and you can be certain that Ms. Francis was very, very nervous about this. Again, referring back to her biography, she stated, quote, An accident of this nature, in addition to the sorrow it caused, could very well have had the effect of bankrupting us. She went on to describe how her lawyers explained that she was being sued for such a large sum of money because she was a famous actress and therefore it was assumed that she had an incredibly high income. This time there was a trial. Ms. Francis's insurance company had settled out of court for three of the five victims of the accident. That was for the late Rose Arcos, her 35-year-old husband Joseph, and their 9-year-old daughter Celeste. The agreed-upon amount was $210,000, and of that amount, $162,500, that's about $1.2 million today, was for the death of Mrs. Arcos, and that was reported by the New York Times to have been the largest award ever made for a housewife up to that point.
Now, there was another couple in the back seat of the Arcos's car. They were Mr. and Mrs. Anthony Catapano. They were both injured, but Mrs. Catapano had the most severe injury with a broken hip. Of course, this is nothing like the death of a spouse. So Edna offered them a lesser amount, you know, lesser than what the Arcoses had been offered, and they opted not to take it. It apparently wasn't enough for them. So on June 5th of 1965, the jury handed down their decision and concluded that Arlene Francis had not been negligent in the accident. It was an accident. As a result, the Catapanos were given, get this, nothing, zilch, nada. They bet and they lost. Arlene Francis, who was once a big star, you know, stage, movies, radio, and of course TV, is mostly forgotten today. If I mention her to anybody my age or younger, they have no clue. She passed away on May 31st of 2001 at the age of 93, and that was attributed to complications of cancer and Alzheimer's disease. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And now for a few words from our retro sponsor. We'll bring you the second act of The Life of Riley in a moment. From Atlantic to Pacific, folks are saying, Prell's terrific. Yes, everywhere it's... T-R-E-L-L, Prell Shampoo. Yes, Procter & Gamble's Radiant Cream Shampoo in the handy tube. Prell is a hit everywhere for two reasons. First, Prell spells glamour for dull, drab hair. Because Prell leaves hair more radiant than any soap shampoo. It can't leave a dulling soap film. Prell brings out those glorious natural highlights, leaves hair soft and smooth, easy to manage. Second, in as little as three minutes, Prell removes unsightly dandruff, and regular shampoos control it. Doctors' examinations proved it. What's more, Prell goes farther than any known shampoo, cream, or liquid, because it's more concentrated. So try the shampoo in the handy tube. For hair radiantly lovely, free of unsightly dandruff, try Prell. <laughs> P-R-E-L-L, Prell Shampoo, leaves hair radiant, gleaming bright. Not a bit of dandruff is in sight. Comes in a tube, handy too. P-R-E-L-L, Prell Shampoo. Buy Prell Shampoo. That commercial for Prell Shampoo is from the October 8th, 1948 broadcast of The Life of Riley. It's one of my favorite old-time radio shows. This particular episode was titled, How to Pick a Mate. 
Now, I chose this commercial for Prell because I had a conversation with some friends a few days ago about brands that were incredibly popular when we were younger, but are basically non-existent today. I brought up Prell as an example, and one of my friends mentioned that she knew of just one store that still carried it. Just to give you an idea of how popular the brand once was, Wikipedia shows that this was one of the top two brands of shampoo in the United States in June of 1977, that along with Head & Shoulders. Prell was introduced by Procter & Gamble way back in 1947, but since this, this show is from 1948, it was a brand new product at the time. What I remember most about Prell was its unique squeeze tube packaging, which was very similar to a large clear toothpaste tube. The shampoo was famous for being incredibly concentrated, and as a little kid I never seemed to have enough strength to get it out of the tube. It was just so humiliating. It was almost like getting sand kicked in my face. So I had no choice. I flipped open my comic book, quickly filled out the form in the back, and I enrolled in the Charles Atlas Dynamic Tension Program. That transformed me into the man that I am today, a 165-pounder who can hit those computer keys as hard as anyone on earth. And now for a few totally useless yet totally true tidbits from history. It's time for it to call News of the Weird Past, and today's stories all involve pets. Our first tidbit is actually related to today's main story. It was reported on February 27th of 1951 that Arlene Francis, host of the TV show Blind Date, had been bitten on the finger by one of her guests. Her guest was none other than Bonzo, the movie chimpanzee. He was on the show to promote his latest movie, Bedtime for Bonzo. She finished the show, but she had to go to the emergency room to get treated. Now, if that title doesn't sound familiar to you, it is the movie where Ronald Reagan, long before becoming President of the United States, played second fiddle to a chimpanzee. Sadly, Bonzo died just one week after his appearance on the show. On Sunday, March 4th, a fire broke out in the chimp house at the World Jungle Compound in Thousand Oaks, California. Three other chimps and a baby kangaroo were also killed in the fire. Bonzo, whose real name was Tamba, was carried out by firemen who spent more than 30 minutes unsuccessfully trying to resuscitate him. At the time, Tamba was earning more than $500 per week. Think about it. It's 1951. That was a lot of dough to earn. When word of his death hit the press, the joke started flying about how Arlene Francis was the cause of his death. You know, suggestions such as, you know, they gave the wrong one a tetanus shot and so on. Although I can't help but wonder if they gave a tetanus shot for an animal bite. Our next story is dated January 10th of 1961, where it was reported that an 8-pound, 3-year-old toy silver poodle named Itzy was dognapped from his owners, Mr. and Mrs. T.S. Callender. The Greensboro, North Carolina couple had been in a restaurant in St. Petersburg, Florida when a thief smashed the back window of their car and stole Itzy. They were contacted the next day through Mrs. Callender's sister and told to bring 500 bucks to a specified location on the beach. They were instructed to leave the cash and returned 15 minutes later for Itzy. And when they did, he was found to be in excellent health. And our last story is a little bit more recent. It's from March 31st of 1984, 
when it was reported that Trooper Gary Simmons's patrol car was hit by another car driven by, get this, a toy poodle. You see, Simmons had pulled over Mario Contarino for running a red light. So he asked Contarino to wait beside him by the side of his cruiser while he radioed into police headquarters for further information. That's when Contarino's poodle, who become quite jumpy from all the excitement, knocked the car's shift into reverse and sent it rolling right into the trooper's vehicle. Now I hope Simmons did the right thing and issued tickets to this poodle. You know, he was driving without a license, he was driving below the legal age, and so on. And now for the answer to today's question of the day. And I had asked what was the name of the first commercially available windshield wiper. Your choices were 1 Everclear, 2 Outlook, 3 Rain Rubber, 4 C-Safe, or 5 Turtleback. Now those all were brands of windshield wipers throughout the years, but those first commercially marketed were called choice number 3, Rain Rubbers. The windshield wiper was invented by Mary Anderson back in 1903, but it was never marketed due to a lack of interest. It may sound incredible today, but it was believed by many at the time that the wipers would be too distracting to drivers and could cause an accident. Even worse, it could hypnotize them. It wasn't until a rainy night in Buffalo, New York in 1917 when a theater owner named J.R. Oishai hit a bicyclist with his car and that's when the need for wipers became apparent. Oishai started the Tricontinental Corporation which is better known today as Trico and that was to produce the first windshield wiper which were manually operated. It is believed that he created his wipers without any prior knowledge of Mary Anderson's patent. At the time, I only felt a punch. I think everything went wrong. His drug of choice was heroin. Binging and purging over and over and over. Evaluate you, and if you're okay to go, they're going to let you go. This is Justin, and I do the Peripheral Podcast. I have a true crime background, but when telling the stories of true crime, sometimes you have to gloss over topics like mental illness, drug addiction, sexual assault. And I feel like we do that in life too. So this podcast is my attempt to bring all of these topics that are on the peripheral into the mainstream. So please join me wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's story that I titled The Sky is Falling, as well as all the other materials that I put together for today's podcast. If you'd like to read more true stories just like these, please be sure to get a copy of one of my books. They are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. Both are written by me, Steve Silverman, and they're available from your bookseller online and from your local library. Now, I have been asked about getting the digital versions overseas, and to the best of my knowledge, outside the United States and Canada, my U.S. publisher doesn't have the right to sell them on Amazon and on iTunes. So, um... I'm not sure what's going to happen with that. I will look into that. And if I do find out anything positive, I will let you know. As always, if you want to see more information about this podcast, such as some of the articles or research materials I use, just go to my Facebook page. That's www.facebook.com slash useless information podcast. That's one word, useless information podcast. And if you have any questions, just drop me an email. My email is useless at steve.silverman.name. That's useless at steve.silverman.name. 
or you can visit my website, which is uselessinformation.org. And I've said this before, I really don't update that uh, website, but there is some contact information and some other stories you can read there. Well, I thank you for listening, and I hope you'll tune in the next time. Bye.